I was, I was tempted while it was dark to not come out. And so that way you guys are like, ah, where did he go? And then I would have been like, this is a message on the rapture, and it would, it would have been funny. Um, but okay, so let me, let me do this before we jump in. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about um, if all that we've heard is true about Jesus, uh, his death, his resurrection, what does that mean for the way that we live in the life of the believer? And I'm going to actually give you something even before we get into the text that you can do right now that's really essential to the life of the believer. Um, this is not something that um, is going to be hard. It's not going to be something that you're going to be like, man, I'm going to have to pray for a really long time how to figure this out. It's actually really simple. It's a small thing called gratitude. I think the ability to have gratitude as a believer in Jesus Christ is one of the most powerful secrets in the life of the believer that if we did that more often, it would completely change the way that we live. Like if we could spend more time being grateful for the grace that we've been given as opposed to being frustrated and discontent with the things that we don't have, I think we would see the world completely differently. And so here's how I want to do that, because you guys have been, even me walking out, you guys have been super gracious to me. You have loved me and celebrated me, um, everything, from you guys being excited with, of me sitting with you at a meal, to me asking me to give shout-outs to, to skunks named Shadow and different things like that, like, like all types of stuff that you guys have been really excited about, loving me well. But here's what I know. After this week, um, I may see some of you again in a, in a setting like this, but I think for most of you, the reality is the people who are going to love you and invest in you and speak into your life day after day are your youth pastors and your leaders that are around you. And so here's what I want you to do. I just, wanna, I just want you guys to give them a standing ovation, to thank them for the ways that they've loved you guys and appreciated you guys. And so here's why I want you to do that. Because three weeks from now, when you're sitting in the back of youth group texting, and they're like, hey, don't do that, don't be like, how dare you not let me do what I want to do. Remember how much they invested in you. Some of them, they don't work for the church. They gave up a week of work to be with you this week because they love you. And so I want you to show them gratitude here. But what you start here, I want you to continue to do even outside of here. Here's the second thing. I want you to do it again. I want you to give gratitude to your, your camp staff, your lead counselors, all of that. Like this is week 10 for them. So this is week one for you. And so you're tired because it's Friday, but you're, you know, you're running on like energy drinks and Skittles. And so that's why you're like, you're still a little bit hype. They've been doing this for 10 weeks and they have not dropped their energy level at all. You would think that they were on week one because they've been going all out for you guys. Um, like Brandon, like suplexing people into the lake. Like, like just uh, like, so, so most of them are not even in, in the room, but for those that are, would you just give them a round of applause? Would you give them a standing ovation? And then last one, I want to model for you guys what you guys just did. Like, I want to thank you. And so, one, I said this, I think, on our first night to you guys who are in our junior hires. Like I said, I think that you're more mature and you can handle more than most people think that you can. And I just think that you're going to be able to ride with us this week. And you guys have been rock stars this week. 
You guys have been in on worship. You've been in on messages. You've been in on conversations. Like, I am so stinking proud of you guys. And so, like, I just want to tell you that I, I, like, I admire you this week for the ways that you guys came with it. So I'm proud of you. I want you to know that. And then high schoolers. It could be really easy to be like, oh, gosh, there are middle schoolers in the room. Like, I'm not getting anything out of this. And you guys have just been dialed in. And so I'm proud of you guys as well, and I'm excited. Um, this, is a, this is a privilege, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't know how many times the Lord's going to allow me to do this in my life, but I am grateful that he allowed me to do this with you this week. And so I just want to share that with you. All right, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 21, ultimately. Let me, let me close the gap from where we ended last week to get to, or last, last week, la, I'm thinking like I'm on a Sunday, uh, from last night to here. And so John chapter 20, we ended with, John and Peter have gone to the tomb and they've looked in and Jesus is not there. And so they go back confused and wrestling with what do we do because he, he told us that he wasn't going to be here, but now we don't know what to do with this. Do we really believe him for what he said or do we believe what's in front of our eyes? And then Mary, who was the original one that told them, Mary goes back to the place and when she walks into the tomb, she looks in and she sees the, the, the cloths that they had used to wrap up Jesus folded. And so it doesn't look like he ran out of there or was taken out of there. It looks like he walked out of there of his own accord. And then she sees two bright shining figures. Now, here's what I know. When you go back down the hill and you get in the car with your family to go to Starbucks and you order whatever drink that's way too long in its title and confusing because tall is actually small, like all of that's super confusing to me, and you go to get some creamer or some sugar to put in there because you're on the inside, they're not going to be two bright, shining figures just handing out, like hanging out, playing with the creamer. So in the scriptures, when you see bright, shining figures in white, it's giving you an indication that something supernatural, something angelic is happening. And so she sees these two angelic beings, and she's asking the que- she asks them the question, hey, do you know what they've done with Jesus? And they ask her the question, well, why are you looking for somebody who's alive amongst the dead? So that doesn't satisfy her because that's actually not really an answer. Like they just said, okay, he's alive, he's not here, but she still doesn't know where he is. And so she spins around and sees a guy in the garden and assumes the guy's the gardener and says to him, hey, tell me what they did with Jesus' body. And all Jesus says to her is Mary. And the minute he says her name, she knows it's him. Now, I think this is really significant because um, you're seeing Jesus in this setting. It actually feels kind of insulting, right? Like you ju- Jesus just rescued the world from sin, defeated death, came back after three days, and she thinks he's a gardener. She thinks he's the kid in the neighborhood that gets paid $25 to mow people's lawns. But I actually think it's a profound spiritual thing that John is writing about because Jesus being a gardener is not an insult. Jesus being a gardener is saying that Jesus is able to do what Adam wasn't able to do. Because Adam was the original gardener that was supposed to guard and keep the garden and make sure that that what God had given us was protected and was shown the image of God to the rest of the world. And Adam failed at that. And Adam's failure caused death. And then what we read, that's the sad statement over and over again of every hero that we see in the scriptures is that they breathed their last and they died. And they breathed their last and they died. And they breathed their last and they died. But when it comes to Jesus standing in the garden and she looks at him and says, you must be the gardener. She didn't understand the depth of what she was saying, but Jesus was being the good and better Adam that lived out what he was supposed to do in the first place. And instead of being taken by death, he took death to the woodshed and he wins the fight. And so, 
Jesus says, Mary, she says, Rabbi, recognizing who he is. She turns and goes to grab him, and he says, don't cling to me. And so that's not Jesus being like high maintenance, being like, hey, I'm just resurrected. You can't touch me. There's an MC Hammer joke there with the song, but it, we'll, just, we'll just keep going. We don't have time. We don't have time for that. And so he says to her, you need to go tell your brothers. Go tell them that, that my God is their God, that my father is their father. And the statement that he's making is like, Mary, as, as epic as this moment is, that if you stand here in the garden and cling to me and don't keep moving on and don't keep spreading the word, then this doesn't get fully accomplished the way it's supposed to be fully accomplished. You go proclaim and share with them what I've done, that I'm resurrected and that you've seen me. And so Mary runs and she goes and tells them and they're like, Mary, you might be a little crazy. And so then they lock themselves in a room and Jesus comes walking through the wall. And they're a little terrified because Jesus has never done that before. And he's in the middle of them and they're like, they're touching him and they're interacting with him. They're like, okay, you're really alive. But unfortunately, Thomas is not there. So they go to tell Thomas, and they're like, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe he's alive unless I get to touch the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. So a few days later, Jesus shows up and says, all right, touch the hole in my hand. Touch the hole in my side. Which at that point, if I'm Thomas, I'm like, how come you know stuff that I said that you weren't in the room? Okay, you're alive. But Thomas reaches in and he does it. And then Jesus makes a statement to him. He's like, you believe because you've seen and because you felt. But it's actually better if you believed and you didn't have that. Like actual faith isn't that you get the evidence of what you believe. Actual faith is that you trust what I said to you and that you base your hope upon that, not just because I proved it to you. And so then we move into chapter 21. Jesus has shown up already twice to his, these disciples. And what we see in chapter 21 is that he's going to show himself again. Chapter 21 would say this. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, if his name was Peeper, man, this would be a really difficult life for him. <laughs> it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. But they got, out, they got out on land and they saw a charcoal fire in place which fish, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples asked him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I want to walk through this because I think there's some small things that if we don't catch them, John's doing some really cool um, literary work here to try and let you know what's going on. So one of the things that's interesting is that John makes, like, he makes it really clear where this happens. He said, hey, this is happening at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is important because earlier in the text, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, when Jesus walks on the water, all of that happens in that same area. And so it's this clear reminder of, oh man, this is a place where Jesus has done some stuff in our life. Not only that, but when you actually read the book of John, one of the cool things about the book of John is John uses themes over and over again. One of the themes that John uses is light. That he, he has this contrast between light and darkness, that when you are in the light, such as back in chapter one, that, he, that the light came into the world and the world didn't receive it, it was this idea of light is this clear understanding or revelation of who Jesus is. Darkness is blindness or inability to see who Jesus is. Another one of the things that he does is that he uses water to help you know that when water is present, it actually is revealing something about who Jesus is on a level that people didn't know before. So for instance, in John chapter one, when it all starts and John says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, he's actually standing by a body of water when he finds that out about Jesus. Or John chapter two, when Jesus shows up at a wedding and the water is turned into wine, it says that people understood who he was, God was glorified and they became his disciples. Or John chapter three, the the way that Jesus decides to answer the question that's being asked by Nicodemus is that that unless you're born of the spirit and water, or maybe John chapter four, where this woman is hanging out a well and she ends up wanting to get some water and finds out more about Jesus than she ever knew. Or John chapter five, where a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years is laying by a pool of water and Jesus Jesus shows up and proves who he is. Or John chapter 6, that they understand a dimension of Jesus' power like they've never seen because Jesus shows up walking on the water. Or John chapter 7, when Jesus is preaching and he makes the statement that if you believe in me that there's going to be water flowing out of you, that I will be in you in a way that you've never known before. Or John chapter 8, where there's actually not a picture of water because all they do in John chapter 8 is want to argue with Jesus about who he really is because they can't see the revelation of who he is. Or John chapter 9, where their guy is blind and Jesus says to him, if you would go wash your eyes in the pool, you'll be able to see fully who I am. Or all the way into John chapter 20, where they spear Jesus in the side and blood comes, blood and water come flying out, and the soldiers recognize him for who he is because of the revelation of water. And so what John's doing by saying early in the morning by the Sea of Tiberias that they're out fishing and they see something, they see someone is saying Jesus is going to be kind enough to reveal to them who he is again. Because what it feels like is that Peter and Nathaniel and Thomas and the sons of Zebedee and two others have decided, hey, Jesus may be resurrected, but either we've we've failed way too much to keep following him or, or we don't know what to do next, and so we're going to go back to what we've always known. Here's why this is important. Because there is going to be a moment for you where you're going to ask yourself if this really worked. There's going to be a moment for you when you come down this hill, when real life is waiting for you, when you get off the van that you drove up here, when you, when you go back to your real world, there's going to be a moment for you that you're going to be like, okay, did Jesus really do what I thought he did up there? Was it just the atmosphere and the right band and Mike yelling at me and, like, and all my friends around me? Was that what was happening? Was I just feeling some emotions or did Jesus actually really do something? And John is trying to help you understand in John 21 that Jesus is kind enough 
That when you have that moment of doubt and when you want to go back to the old way of thinking and living and questioning whether this is real, that Jesus is kind enough to reveal himself to you again. Here's the other interesting thing is that they're in the boat fishing. And and here's the funny thing. Um, If you read the accounts of the disciples fishing, they don't ever actually catch fish without Jesus. Like, for whatever reason, they are awful fishermen. So Jesus rescued them from the wrong career because they are not good at this. And so they are not catching fish, which is how he found them in the first place. And so then he says, hey, have you thought to try and throw the net on the other side? Which I'm sure they're thinking, hey, we do this for a living. You're standing on the shore. You, how are you going to tell us after we've been working at this all night, just throw your net on the other side? The last person that did that was Jesus. He was right, but you ain't him. They throw their nets on the other side, and they have so many fish that they can't pull it in the boat, which is what happened the first time. And so John is like, oh, this is Jesus. And then I love, because it feels like John takes every opportunity he can to let you know that Peter's a little cray-cray. So they're 100 yards away from the, sh- from the shore. Everybody else stays in the boat and rows the boat. But Peter dives in and decides he's Michael Phelps and swims to Jesus like, Peter, just stay in the boat. We're going to get there in like five seconds. But Peter's got to do what Peter, Peter's got to Peter, right? So like he's got to do his thing. So they get on the shore and they see Jesus there making fish. And John's doing some things that are like really detailed, like 153 fish. I don't know why he needs to tell you that it's 153 fish other than to tell you that it was a real account. Or the fact that Jesus was cooking fish with a charcoal fire. Now, that detail actually matters. Because the only other time in the scriptures that you get described that level of detail about a fire happens to be when Jesus was, uh, was on trial. And so when Jesus was on trial, Peter was outside, but John got to go on the inside because the high priest knew who John was. And John asked the high priest, can I bring my other friend in? And so when Peter gets brought in, he doesn't get to go in as far, but he starts warming himself around the fire. And John would tell us in John 18 that while he's standing around the fire, they begin to ask him if he's a disciple of Jesus. And he says no. And then he would quietly warm his hands after he denies Jesus three times over a charcoal fire. And so it's if as Jesus is returning Peter to the scene of his failure. The place where you denied me, the place where you messed up, the place where after you said to me, all these other guys might fail you, but I'll lay my life down for you, Jesus. And then when a enslaved girl asked him if he followed Jesus, he's like, "Mm -mm, I don't know him. The place where people were asking the question, hey, wait a minute, my cousin was the guy that got his ear cut off. Weren't you the one that cut his ear off? No, I I don't know him. My aim's not that bad. Like, I, if I was swung a sword, I'd cut his head off. I wouldn't just get his ear. Peter didn't say that. I'm just, he probably should have said that, though. Um, Jesus has got this charcoal fire and is inviting him back to this place of his failure. I mean, how scary does that feel? Because when you go down the hill, you are going to go back to places of failure. Um. My niece graduated high school in May. And so the, the third week of May, I got to fly home. Um, I got to go to her graduation. I got to be super uncle because I showed up at graduation and she didn't know that I was coming. And so like, it, was, it was this awesome moment. But I, it was hard for me to go home because there are places that I drive in Oklahoma City and I can remember the sins that I committed. I can remember the trouble that I caused. I can remember the person that I've been um, 
in the best way possible trying to run from since the Lord rescued me from my sin. And it's a scary thing to go back and recognize, man, this is the scene of the crime. I walked in, my, my niece goes to a small private Christian school. And I walk in, and so there's, there's the seats on the floor for the graduating class and for the immediate family. And super uncles get pushed into the, the, the stands because you know, you're just not that close to the, the family. And as I'm walking to my seat in the stands, I lock eyes with a girl that I dated. And, man, y'all, y'all, got, y'all made that more epic than it was going to be. It was, it's, you don't even know what I'm going to say yet. You don't even know what I'm, you know I'm going to say yet. All right. And the reality is, there were some ways that I was sinful and didn't honor the Lord. And seeing her in person rem- reminded me of the scene of the crime. And it's going to be in those moments that you're going to need to know that when Jesus is waiting for you in those places, he's not waiting for you to accuse you. He's waiting for you to remind you how good he's been to you and the way that he's carried the penalty of your sin. And so in what feels like the end of an A&E movie or Lifetime, Jesus is waiting on the beach making breakfast for these dudes. Like it feels like the credits should roll The movie should be over. There should be a commercial for buying your mom a Mother's Day card afterwards. Like it feels like we've gotten to the point where it's like, okay, all of this is resolved. But the chapter doesn't end there. Verse 15 would say this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I don't know if these refers to the fish that he'd returned to and caught or the other disciples, and I don't know that it matters, but... Um, Simon's response to him is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And so imagine... You've come to the beach, the charcoal fire is there to remind you that the last time you were at the charcoal fire, that's where you failed Jesus. You're eating breakfast, you guys are laughing and talking, you've been with them again. This is another sign that Jesus is physically resurrected because he's eating breakfast with you. And then he pulls you to the side. And that's when the anxiety starts to build. Oh man, now we're going to have a conversation about the ways that I messed up. Now that you got me one-on-one and nobody else is around, now you're going to ask me, why did you deny me three times? Why did you run off in my moment of need? And Jesus doesn't ask him any of that. Jesus doesn't ask him, hey, how can I still love you after what you did to me? Jesus actually asks him the opposite. Do you love me? 
Now, this happens three times, and people smarter than me that study these things would say the reason Jesus asked him three times is to cancel out the three times that he denied him, and that may be true. But I'm less interested in the number of times that he asks him, and I'm more interested in what he says when he responds that he does love him. That he says to him, okay, well, if you love me, then take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. It's this idea that the love of Jesus is going to be played out in Peter's life in the way that he cares for the others that are following Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if I trust Peter with that job. When I read my Bible, Peter comforts me. Because there are things that Peter does that I'm like, man, I've done a lot of boneheaded things, but I'm not doing that. Like, like Peter, is, Peter is the impulsive friend that you don't tell secrets to because they're going to tell somebody right away. Peter is the fun uncle that you want to take you to an amusement park, but you don't want to babysit you when it's, when it's a serious situation. And so Peter does things like, for instance, there's this moment where Jesus is, is with his disciples and they're in a place that's full of idols. And he asks them the question, well, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And they say to him, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say that you're Elijah. And he's like, well, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, I got this, fellas. You're the living son of God. And he's like, flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but you've got this from my father. Six verses later, Jesus is telling them that he's going to die, and Peter's like, nah, you can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, let me, let me explain that to you. That is not of a term of endearment. And so your little camp crush, when you get down the mountain and you text them and you be like, hey, what are you doing tonight, Satan? That's not going to go well because it's not a term of endearment. And so this is Jesus saying to Peter, you're acting like the devil's in you if you're trying to oppose the things of God. How do you six verses from getting, hey, you nailed it, the, my father in heaven told you this, get to then hearing Jesus say to you, I'm calling you Satan. <laughs> or there's this moment where Jesus is getting ready. We talked about it last night, that Jesus um, gets down and takes off his outer, outer garment and wants to wash the feet of his disciples. And everybody's getting their feet washed, and then you get to Peter, and Peter's like, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. And that was a sign of respect. He was making a statement that Jesus, you and your power, like you shouldn't be doing this for me. And, and Jesus' response to him is, well, if I don't wash you, you can have no part of me. And so then his response is, well, then you should just wash all of me, Jesus. That's awkward, Peter. You probably shouldn't say that to Jesus. And so it's like, man, sometimes you nail it. And other times, man, you just say stuff that it's like, open mouth, insert foot. We've already talked about how bad his aim is with his sword trying to cut off a dude's head and get in his ear. Like, just Peter's just not nailing it on all levels. And so, it's, but it's not just Peter. The reality is that if what's true about the scriptures and what's true about Jesus and what's true about our sin is that we in our own power don't get it right, we in our own power don't get it right even post-resurrection. So why does Jesus trust him that much to care for his sheep as a sign of his love for him? I don't think it's because he's convinced of Peter's ability. I think it's because Jesus isn't convinced of his own. 
Let me read you two texts that help me understand why Jesus is so convinced. John chapter 10, uh, we talked about this a little bit in passing last night. Uh, in Jesus is having a conversation after he's healed a blind man. And after healing that blind man, um, he then begins to talk about being the door and the shepherd. But then he makes this statement down in verse 27, and it says this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Here's Jesus' confidence when he's talking to Peter. It's like, the Lord, has, my Father, has given me you. And regardless of how many times you fail and falter, Peter, you didn't, you didn't even make it through the, the week of the crucifixion. You didn't even make it through that night, and you failed and faltered. But here's what I want you to know. Even when you fail, they ain't taking you out of my hand. Can, can, I, can I speak that? Can I remove Peter's name, and can I put your name in there? That last night, if you raised your hand and said, I want to follow Jesus, that I'm going to trust Jesus, that when you go down this mountain, there are going to be moments when you fail and when you falter. And Jesus says, here's my confidence. I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice and I have given them eternal life. So therefore they will not perish. And the ones that my, my father's given me, ain't nobody snatching them up out my hand. This is what's true in the life of the believer. When you have challenge and suffering and doubt, is that challenge and that suffering and that doubt will not remove you from Jesus' hand. Can, can I say to you, you need to know that, in fact, when you go through the next thing that's difficult, I just want you to pull this lie out of your mind that if you go through something difficult, it's not because God's mad at you. Because if you have trusted Jesus, there is no wrath of God left for you. Jesus took all of that. And so if you're going through something difficult, that's suffering that might produce something in you. I hope that you got, most of you guys got to hear Sarah when she shared in her seminar and she walked through Romans 5. And she walked through how in her own life she saw how the Lord has played out, played out Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. That if you're going through difficult things, one, they're not going to take you out of Jesus' hands. But on top of that, your suffering is not pointless. It's not purposeless. It's actually productive. And so whatever it is that you go through next, the Lord is stirring something in you to grow you, even through the difficult things that you go through, and he will not let you get ripped out of his hand. Here's reason number two that I'm convinced that Jesus is not convinced about Peter's ability, but he's convinced about what he's offered Peter. In John 14, Jesus makes a promise of giving the Spirit to his disciples, in fact, he talks about it in such a way that it's like, it's better that I go um, that you might receive the Spirit. Here's what he says, starting in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Like, hear the beauty of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not leaving you by yourself. It, it may feel that way. 
you may feel leaving Hume, not having your, your cabin mates around you, going back into whatever your home situation might be like. Man, I'm, I feel like I'm on my own. In fact, when you read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's a little confusing because Jesus um, begins to say to them, hey, here's what I'm calling you to do, to go into all the world and make disciples uh, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even until the end of the age. And then he floats up in the air and leaves. It's like, wait a minute. If you're with me, how come you ain't with me? Like, if I'm... If I'm walking into a fight and you're like, I'm with you, I'm like, all right, let's go do this. Not that I should be getting into fights. I'm a 40-year-old man. Why am I fighting anybody, right? And I walk into that situation and I look around and you ain't there. I don't care how much emotionally you're with me. I need some bodily presence with me. And so Jesus saying to them, lo, I'm with you, and then ascending, that doesn't make sense, except for he's like, now here's what I've placed in you. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Remember where we talked about there's these three categories of sin, that you've got this general missing of the mark, you've got this um, deliberate action, this transgression, and you've got this bent, or your nature is bent towards sin. Here's what the spirit in you does. It now counteracts the brokenness of your nature so you can fight the deliberate action and you can actually meet the mark. And so what Jesus is trying to say to them is, hey, here's where I'm confident. I know you blew it, Peter, but I'm placing my spirit within you to give you what you don't have within yourself. When you say to Jesus, I trust you, it's not this, hey, well, you prayed some prayer, good luck. He is actually transforming you from the inside out by his spirit to make you into who you ought to be. And so now you live out maturing into what he's already called you to be. Um, my four-year-old, he's really smart. Um, and... The good thing about that is I can have some really sweet conversations with him. The bad thing about that is sometimes he thinks we're peers. And so the other day, we went to Chick-fil-A for dinner because when mom goes out of town, you get in Chick-fil-A for dinner. Like, this is, it is what it is. And the Chick-fil-A that we go to is a drive through only. And um, if you turn right, it's the quickest way out of the parking lot. If you turn left, I actually had no idea what happens when you turn left, but I thought it lets you get out on the street instead of having to go right out and go to a light. So I was like, we're going to turn left. So I turned left. And it ends up being the dead end in the back of a bowling alley and you can't get out. And he was like, what happened, Dad? I was like, I turned the wrong way. Well, why'd you turn the wrong way? Because I was trying something new. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that, Dad. I'm like, you know you're four, right? And you've never driven before. But here's what he understands. He understands that you stop at a red light, you slow down at a yellow light, you, you go on a green light. He understands that you turn on your turn signal to go left or right. He understands that you press a brake to slow down. So like he has all of this cerebral knowledge of how a car operates. But he can't drive. And so what he knows over the next 12 years, he's actually going to grow into. And so he doesn't actually have the ability to do the thing that he understands. The truth about you is that the Spirit of God is in you, making you into somebody that you didn't know that you actually were. And then the rest of your life, you're going to live that out. And ultimately, you're going to become what the Spirit has made you to be. 
And so it's this graceful process called sanctification. Um, that's, a, that's a $10 word that means maturity, that you're doing the work of maturity to follow after Jesus as the Spirit is transforming you and making you into the person that you ought to be. And so I think Jesus is confident because he knows that he will not let you go, but he knows that the Spirit is changing you from the inside out. Let's finish our text. And then Jesus says something to Peter that if I were just going to be honest with you, if I'm Peter, I'm like, you could have skipped that part, Jesus. Because he says to him, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you wanted to go wherever you, you would go wherever you wanted to go. But when you get old, you're going to stretch out your hands and somebody else is going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he was pointing to the type of death that Peter was going to die. And I want you to think through that. That Peter, this guy who was scared of a slave girl's accusation, a guy who denied Jesus standing by a charcoal fire, that Jesus says that the way that your life is going to end is that you're going to lay down your life for me. That this guy who didn't look like he was going to be able to get it done, that Jesus said in the end, because I can see the end from the beginning, you're going to go farther for me than you would ever think that you would go. And then he ends this conversation with him with the simple call that he started his very first conversation with Peter with. Follow me. You now know the reality of what you're getting into, and the call hasn't changed. You've stumbled, you've failed, you've made mistakes. Don't worry about that. I've covered your sin, both past, present, and future. You're in my hands. I'm not going to let you go. The Spirit's making you into what, I, what I'm calling you to be. And what I'm calling you to be is to proclaim my name in such a way that you give everything that you are towards that, even giving up your life for it. But with all those details, the call hadn't changed since the first time we had a conversation. Follow me. Because I want you to know that the call of Jesus is for you to follow him. And, th and that call to follow Jesus, um, the way we often say it in my church is, Jesus, you have my yes. You put it wherever you want on the map. I want to apologize to you because my generation has spent time building big platforms and ministries as opposed to following Jesus in a way that says, we'll lay down our life and wherever we could go in whatever way we could, and we don't care if anybody knows our name. There's a thought process in, in the work of missions, and if you were part of Mikey's, uh, Mikey's chapel yesterday morning, he talked about missions a little bit. There's a reality with missions sending and dollars that they say that 99% of what's given goes to places that already are reached. And so imagine if uh, you walked in here tonight and I had a telephone pole on the stage. And I said to you, hey, the worship team really doesn't want to try and log dance on the telephone pole, so we need to move this off the stage. And if we got a team of people up here and 99 people came to one end of the, of the telephone pole and there was one person on the other end, it would be foolish if you were like, I'm going to go to the end with 99 people. Maybe it's not foolish. Maybe you're like, I'm going to go to that end so that way I don't have to do any work. 
but it would be insane to send more people, more energy, more strength to the side that's already got people, energy, and strength. You should actually send people where there's only one person, and that's where people should be willing to go. And the thing that my generation has done is that we've been really good at sending our money in places that we're not willing to send our kids. And I want to challenge you to be the generation that hears the call of Jesus that says that when you are old, that, the Lord, that he may, your arms may be stretched out and you may be carried to places that you don't want to go for the name of Jesus, that you may lay your life down for him. Follow him. Because there's not anything that you're going to step into that Jesus hasn't already gone into first. There's not anything that Jesus is calling you to do that he didn't do himself. That he would go to places where he was not known, that people might know him. And even if he was rejected, that he was willing to enter in, even to the giving up in his life. And he's saying, now that you say that you love me and you want to care for my people, follow me. Go where I've been. Do what I've done. This is what's true for the life of the believer. You know what I would love? I would love if 17 years from now, we've got a room full of jits who went to unreached people groups because they heard that following Jesus says that, Jesus, you have my yes, put it wherever you want. I'd love for 17 years from now that some of you are standing amongst people that when you're telling them the gospel, it's the first time they've ever heard it. I'd love 17 years from now if some of you are the type of people that we're trying to challenge kids like you to say, hey, this is an example of what happens when people take following Jesus seriously. And then I want to be really honest with you. That type of work doesn't produce quick fruit. People who give their lives that way, some people give their lives that way and spend generations working with people and seeing only a handful of people come to the Lord. The reality is that some people enter into that type of work and, and lose their lives. Some people enter into that type of work and because of having to raise funds or because of illness or because of whatever, that they end up having to be sent back home. And what I want to rescue, for, rescue you from is thinking that results is the win. And so if I don't get to say anything else to you, I want to leave you with this. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul's writing, and he's, um, he's actually expending a lot of energy to help them understand the resurrection. He starts that chapter by reminding them of the gospel in which they were saved, in which they're being saved, and by which they will be saved in the future. And he lays out the gospel for them being of first importance, that Jesus died according to the scriptures for the weight of their sins, and that he, like one who was untimely born, has been a recipient of that very same gospel, which has called him to proclaim it to others. And then he begins to do this work of understanding that because of the resurrection, we live with this fearless boldness that, like, you can take my life from me because ultimately the Lord's going to give it back to me, so I'm going into difficult things. So he spends 50-some-odd verses explaining the beauty of the resurrection, and then here's where he ends. He said, here's the reason I told you everything that I just told you. 
Here's the reason that I've spent the last five days giving you, like pouring out my guts to you to get you to believe Jesus, get you to believe his gospel, and get you to want to follow after him. The reason that I'm asking you to do that, the reason Paul was asking them to do that, is here's what he believes. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Students, if you get nothing else from me, if you leave this place able to be steadfast and immovable, that when hard days come that you're not shaken, that even when your own doubts show up that you don't waver because you recognize that the Lord will not let you go and that he's giving you your spirit, that his spirit, that if you become a people who are like, you're ever abounding in the work of the Lord, Man, I hope you guys heard something that Mikey said to you yesterday, that before you pick a college, pick a church. What that means is that you're so serious about the work of the Lord that you're, you're, you're building your trajectory through that. I pray that you make decisions saying, okay, what gives me the most margin and ability to do the work that the Lord has in front of me? When I was your age, the way that I made decisions was, what is going to make me a millionaire the fastest? It still hasn't worked yet. But what if I at 17, 18, 19, what if I at 13, 14, 15 said to the Lord, hey, what is it that you want me to do? And how are you setting me up for that? Always abounding in the work of the Lord means that it's primary in your mind. What if when you go back to school in a few weeks, you, you strike up friendships because you're thinking about how can I abound in the work of the Lord? And so instead of trying to build my status and getting people to like me, what if I'm looking for the person that the Lord wants to do work in and I'm going to give my, my next school year to loving and caring for that person? Because even if you don't receive results in that, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And can I say something, students, in front of you, to your leaders? Your labor's not in vain. You may have been investing and praying and crying for students that you don't feel like they're getting it. Your labor's not in vain. And in the same way that I'm asking them to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, you be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. When that particular student who the, you thought the Lord broke through at camp and you thought they were going to be a different person and three months from now, they're not, gonna, they're not returning your calls or your text messages, be steadfast and immovable. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. When I was a youth leader, I was, the, I was the youngest youth leader. I had just graduated high school. They made me a youth leader as a freshman in college, um, and they gave me all the hard kids. And my, at one point, I had a, in my group of kids, I had two guys who called me in the middle of the night because they'd been arrested. I had one guy who had been caught by his parents sneaking his girlfriend in and out of his room. And another group of kids who decided that they were going to stop going to church. And so I was apparently an awful youth leader, which I probably should have told Hume this before they let me preach camp. 
And I just went into this immensely dark place of feeling like I wasn't good enough for the Lord, I wasn't good enough for ministry, and I couldn't show my face at the church that I was serving at because I was so ashamed of the ways that I failed. I didn't want to answer anybody's calls. I didn't want to face anybody. I felt like I had failed so much that, that the Lord was done with me. I proved that I wasn't worthy to be a volunteer in ministry, much less be in vocational ministry. And the thing that brought me out of it was our junior high pastor just wouldn't stop calling me. Like, annoyingly so. Like, maybe should have got a restraining order for the amount of times that he called me. And he, all he would say is, hey, bro, I hope you're okay. just want you to know that I love you, and my door's open if you need to talk. You don't know how many times that message was on my voicemail. And one day it broke through, and the next time he called, I answered. And I said, man, I've been hiding for the last several months because I feel like I failed so much. And so I just want you to know that even when it feels like there's no response, that the Lord's using it. Be steadfast, be immovable, ever abound in the work of the Lord. Because in the Lord, your labor's not in vain. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. I thank you that my confidence is not in my teaching. My confidence is not as gifted as the worship team is in the worship team. My confidence is not in this environment and how well Hume has thought through walking students through understanding the truth, accepting that truth, and then living that truth. My confidence is in your spirit, and my confidence is in the strength of your hand, Jesus, that you will not let these students go. And so because of that, would they be just ferocious when it comes to following you? Would they avoid the mistake of my generation? And would they give their lives to the 1%? Would they be willing to say, Jesus, you have my yes. Put it in the places where no one else has gone. Put it amongst the people groups who have not yet heard. Put it amongst the peoples who don't know or don't understand. And Lord, not just in their future years from now when they've graduated and raised funds, but would you do that on their campuses with the people that are often marginalized and ignored? Would they be the ones that say, Jesus, you have my yes, I'll go be their friend? Because Lord, would you let them know because of what you've done for them and the power of the resurrection, that they could be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work and knowing that the work that they're doing will not be in vain because it's unto you. So Lord, I thank you for that grace. Would you help us live it? It's your matchless name I pray. Amen.